Spectrum is brought to you by the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. Before a new idea can become a way of thinking, before one detail can flip the narrative, before anything that matters can change the world, it must, above all, be known. The duty of the Scripps College of Communication is to bring forth the people who bring forth the knowledge, by word or image or data stream and in every medium and by all means, they succeed. They say, make it loud, make it clear, make it known. Learn more at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. Welcome to Spectrum. I'm your host, Tom Hodson. On Spectrum, we cover a wide range of topics that are important to our daily lives. We feature journalists, authors, scholars, policymakers, activists, scientists, innovators, and sometimes people with just fascinating stories. Today, we talk with Dr. Kenneth Johnson, the Executive Dean of the Heritage College of Osteopathic Medicine and Chief Medical Officer at Ohio University. Dr. Johnson also serves as the Chair of the Ohio Council of Medical School Deans. Dr. Johnson continues our conversation about the looming healthcare personnel shortage facing the United States and what, if anything, is being done about it. Dr. Johnson, everything that I read tells us that we're going to be in a healthcare crisis in the sense that we will lack healthcare personnel in the very near future. Can you frame that for us and tell us exactly what that means? Yeah, you know, it actually hits on just about every area of healthcare. Um, and some of the drivers of it include an aging population, as well as uh, a lack of um, pipeline for workforce uh, to actually fill in the needs that we have on, in everywhere in the United States. And, and when you say a lack of pipeline of workforce, you're talking about everything. You're talking about physicians, physicians' assistants, all up and down the line, correct? Yeah, the, yeah, the entire the entire spectrum of um, physicians, nurses, physicians assistants, uh, the uh, technicians to help, uh, really, uh, in, in in every case. And in some ways, the pandemic has really shined a light even further on the on the issues. And it gets it gets worse in rural settings and uh, in, in underserved settings as well. Because doctors are not, uh, some of them are retiring. Uh, you're not getting new doctors to replace them. You've got a population that's aging and uh, living longer. Uh, both of those seem to be in, on a collision course. Yeah, that's exactly right. We have a physician workforce as an example that a uh, significant number that are at retirement uh, the pandemic has pushed people actually on um, through burnout to retire on um, early uh, as part of that and an aging an aging population which carries with it the um, the ailments of aging and and you mean by that uh, what oh so um, just in general is you know with people living longer 
on they have on diseases as they're getting older. We're we're better at managing chronic disease, which means people are 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 living longer. But there's more people to care for, on and that we have a a workforce need that's a mismatch with the with the population right now. And in that population that's living longer, they're living with uh, various maladies, health maladies, uh, diabetes, and other things that that have to be treated uh, because they are living longer. Correct? Yes, that's exactly right. And we're 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 better at managing uh, chronic disease, but there's more people to manage with with chronic disease. And and you know, hopefully, in the long term, the goal is really to have people live a longer. Uh, in healthier life, uh, and uh, we've learned a lot, but we're just we're not there yet. Now, a lot of people think that this healthcare crisis that uh, we're we're facing is only due to the pandemic and only due to COVID. But what I gather from reading and and talking with you, that's not the case. No, this has been around for a long time, and actually. You know, for for physician workforce, um, there was a period of time where there was a belief that there would be a glut in physicians. And for physicians, they train in medical school and they have to go on to residency training. Uh, In 1997, um, it was believed that we would have too many physicians. So there was a cap put on training for physicians uh, in hospital settings. Uh, And literally the next year, uh, we found out that that was not the right thing, but that cap still exists. And so the the pipeline has some limitations in how big the pipe uh, can actually get. That was established in in 1997. Estimates of physician workforce shortages have been around really since like 1998 uh, now. And we've un- we're understanding that better and better on every year with a higher level of granularity, both in primary care and in this in multiple specialties. Well, let me run some uh, statistics by you and and get a reality check. Uh, I've been reading several things, and this is from the American Hospital Association. It says that we will have a shortage of 3.2 million healthcare workers by 2026. Now, that seems staggering to me. Uh, Is that accurate? I think if you again, if we if we look at the entire workforce as we talked about before, physicians, nurses, nurse practitioners, PAs, and I completely believe that on healthcare is one of the fastest growing on professions due to on the need of the you know kind of growing population, aging population, on et cetera. On with that, and I I was actually fortunate to participate in some of the listening sessions on. Uh, back when uh, Bill Clinton was on uh, president, and we we presented on uh, to on uh, some of the leaders in Congress on uh, some of the thought process of what it would take to try to fill the gap, and we did the thought experiment of if you added 500 new physician on uh, programs every year, a uh, thousand new positions every year, 1,500 positions on uh, every year, every single one of them still led to a gap. On in in our ability to fill that that pipeline, so we're we're in a fairly significant on uh, deficit right now. Another figure, two other figures that that are part of this report that I was reading, 
uh, say that there would be a, a shortage of 124,000 physicians by 2033, and 200,000 nurses per year will be needed to meet the increased demand. Do those figures sound realistic to you? Oh, absolutely. Those that, That's right in the ballpark of numbers that we've been talking about over the last decade or two um, for the need to fill the uh, the, the gap that, that exists. Now, has has the COVID burnout, as, as it's popularly called in the media, and that's, that's oversimplified, I'm sure, but has it... it exacerbated this or accelerated this or how has that changed the figures if these are the figures you've been talking about for a number of years we've had this additional factor thrown on top of it yeah so i think that the on uh, those folks nearing retirement on uh, we've seen an accelerated rate of people retiring early on due to in part being burnt out on and just this being a you know just kind of wave after wave of covid being uh, crushing uh, to healthcare providers. Um, and we already had an aging workforce to, to start with beforehand. I, I think the piece that's actually also interesting here is that we had less data about rural and underserved on settings and the pandemic really has brought that on to, to light. And if you were to try to fill in on, in rural settings, access for physicians on top of the you know 120 that you just talked about there's an estimate that we could need actually maybe even 180,000 more uh, to provide near and needed access for those folks that are living in in, in rural uh, settings so i think the pandemic has really kind of highlighted on uh, a couple of critical elements of the uh, provider workforce so we we've sort of stated the issue. We've stated the the significance uh, of the uh, lack of healthcare workers in in the future. But let let's talk about what can be done to maybe alleviate this. I I want to talk a little bit more in depth, if you could, about the cap on residencies. Um, that that was cap on Medicare residencies, correct? Yes, that's right. So the vast majority of funding for postgraduate training or the residency period of time is funded through Medicare. There's a little bit of Medicaid funding uh, in some states, but the vast majority is 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 through Medicare. And Medicare capped on its on its payments for on programs. So. The only way that you can really expand, for the most part, graduate medical education is in hospitals that have never had graduate medical education before, or there is an exemption for on rural on hospitals on being able to expand programs. But but who makes this decision to to remove the cap? Is it Congress? Is it? Uh, some administrative agency within the federal government. Yeah, uh, who's going to look at this and perhaps make some changes? It's it's it would be Congress, and there have been multiple attempts over the last uh, since 1997 to introduce legislation um, that would uh, allow or remove the cap, allow the growth of of graduate medical education, and the thing that usually stops it. Is, is cost estimates of it and how much it would actually cost 
to then remove the uh, remove the cap. Well, let me be cynical for for <laughs> a moment. You can be cynical if you want, Tom. Okay, but because you know, Congress can't agree what day of the week it is, uh, and and yet we've got this crisis that seems to be accelerated by COVID, as we talked about. The numbers are what they are, and the federal government doesn't seem to be doing a lot about it. Uh, how can we hope that they're going to address this? Uh, that's, that's such a great question. There have been um, some attempts to address it and maybe address it in, in, in unique or, or different ways. So um, for more than a decade now, there's been a program called the Teaching Health Center um, Program and on um, community health centers and community health centers in partnership with others um, are eligible for funding in a different mechanism um, to train on um, residents. And most of those are primary care residencies and, and, and those are in some of the most underserved settings. So there have been some programs uh, meant to fill uh, that gap that work outside of, outside of Medicare. Yeah, it it has to be it has to be addressed, you know, straight up. It can't be one of these things that you nibble around the edges because that won't do anything to the numbers, right? Exactly. We have to go right into the uh, to the formula itself uh, to to allow that to happen. So there was a call for, um, uh, in response to these estimated shortages, there was a call for a thirty percent increase in uh, medical schools on either new medical schools or expanding on current medical schools. Uh, and the, the real limiter of on training is in the clinical environment, opportunities for students to train in hospitals. And those are most commonly in places where there are residency programs, which is really the, uh, the major uh, limiter of being able to expand uh, workforce. So if, if we look at medical school training and and certainly this is this is right in your wheelhouse how are you as a educator trying to address this shortage yeah so we, it, it, in the medical school that I, that I run we we grew our on class and in open two new locations to do that. Um, we, we've been focused on primary care and particularly here primary care uh, in Ohio, drawing students from Ohio, training them in Ohio, keeping them in uh, in Ohio. Um, and we, we actually did that in somewhat in some unique ways, starting at looking at what are the needs of the community, uh, either locally or more globally uh, in the state. And what was interesting to me uh, in looking at the state of Ohio 66% of the counties in the state of Ohio are underserved for primary care physicians, 66%. Now, is Ohio fairly typical of a, a lot of states? Yeah, I think it is similar. I was actually surprised when I came to Ohio with, you know, kind of the really vibrant health care that we have in the large, you know, kind of the large cities, Columbus, Cleveland, uh, Cincinnati. Uh, I thought that the state would be a little more served, that maybe even a lot more served uh, than, it, than it is. Um, but, you know, health care... And education tends to sit in in the larger, uh, you know, kind of larger metropolitan uh, areas. Uh, and so, 
Yeah, it is. It is. It is somewhat somewhat similar. Some some states, particularly very very rural states, it, it's um, you know significantly uh, worse. So, have you uh, opened the doors to more students, uh, or have you changed your standards? Uh, how are you getting more people into the pipeline? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. So we doubled our class size, opened two new locations. And I was worried that um, with having a larger student body that uh, we would, you know, maybe somehow need to go further down in our in our list on either, you know, students with their GPAs or their scores on standardized tests. And we actually saw the reverse happen. Uh, we had a significant expansion of applicants. So we went from 4,000 applicants to now 5,700 applicants um, per year. And the, the quality of the candidates actually went up uh, and, not, and not down. And I, I think my reflection on it is that on giving more opportunity for, um, uh, for people, for candidates, actually draws more, it draws more people in. Um, so it's almost, it's almost been a little bit paradoxical. Now, the people that are being drawn in, uh, not just to your program, but I know you're familiar with programs uh, around the country, uh, are, are they looking to be specialists? Are they looking to be general practitioners? Uh, how are they designing their curriculum, and what are they looking to do? Yeah, that one is a is a really big, it depends on the, on the institution. So... Uh, Ohio University is very focused, its medical school is very focused on producing primary care physicians. And we know that on curriculum designed and implemented by primary care physicians, primary care faculty, uh, really is a major factor in helping to uh, produce and support on uh, primary care. Uh, others are very focused on uh, creating specialties and uh, specialists uh, in the various different specialties, and we need all of it. Uh, there is a significant gap uh, in both primary uh, and, uh, and specialty care. We'll be back after this message. The Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University seeks to not only educate its students about today's communication industry, but to produce innovative leaders who will shape the future of communication and its methods of delivery in a rapidly changing technological landscape. Scripps provides leadership in communication by preparing students to be effective and responsible communicators in a global society and by advancing the field through creative activity and research. The Scripps College of Communication fosters multicultural awareness within a diverse community. It strives to create a climate of civility where leadership and innovation are prized and responsibility and accountability are understood. The college values curriculum, research, and creative activity that provide benefits to people regionally, nationally, and globally. Learn more at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. Talk about supporting personnel. We've talked a little bit about nurses, but and and physicians assistants and nursing uh, nurse practitioners. But 
this extends to healthcare workers in the community, to visiting nurses, to to people that supply services to uh, nursing homes or rehab centers. Uh, those figures are all going down as well, correct? Yeah. So the, again, the kind of there's a there's a there's a broad need for on on folks at every level, and and what what you'll hear often or see written is that. The goal has been to try to get everybody to function at the highest level of their license, uh, in part because we need we need people to uh, be able to provide the care because it's there's there's such a uh, you know such a high need um, for that. But because of an aging population of uh, of, of people, on um, uh, maybe on the good side, we have many more treatments that are available uh, to uh, to folks. We need help at all at all levels. On uh, you know, technicians, support people, uh, even you know, front desk folks, on uh, et cetera, and, and a trained and a trained workforce uh, to be able to to do that. So, on um, healthcare, if you're interested in going into healthcare, it, it's a great market because there's such a huge such a huge need right now. Is it difficult encouraging people to to get into healthcare, perhaps not at the physician level, but at the nursing level and and down? I don't know if it's if it's difficult. I I think if I go back to the journey of someone thinking about they're interested in healthcare, there's lots of different uh, options and opportunities on for them, uh, and I think it's helping people along that journey figure out uh, what is really the right. The right fit for them, uh, and how do we create opportunities for folks who maybe don't um, uh, quite succeed in a, in a path that they were thinking of to start with? So, as an example, I mean, we we have fifty seven hundred applications for two hundred and fifty positions. Uh, that's a lot of people applying to get into medical school. Some people will apply a couple times uh, to try to get in, uh, and eventually. Maybe they're successful, or maybe they're not. Well, what what can they do if they're not getting into medical school? That's still fulfilling to them that they want to be part of the of the health the healthcare team. And maybe backing up a little bit, how do we how do we create pathways on going you know high school or or before that really helps people to see what their opportunities really could be and and help match them on you know kind of their their skills, knowledge, uh, attitude. Uh, desires, uh, hopes, and dreams to to the right to the right pathway uh, for them. One of the things that that I've read and and heard from talking to other healthcare professionals is that, especially in the area of nursing, there is a paucity uh, or a shortage of faculty uh, uh, to teach uh, people. Are you finding that, and can you talk about the the lack of faculty or or that problem? Yeah, I think that's something that we have to be very conscious of. On um, you know, we talk about on um, faculty development and developing faculty and taking people who are clinicians and helping them to be able to be uh, to be teachers. Um, there are um, a lot of uh, support opportunities to help develop. On faculty, I've actually kind of backed it up all the way into uh, to medical school on, at this point on, to develop our, our faculty. And in particular, uh, an area that I have a great interest in is on developing on underrepresented minority on faculty. Um, and I feel the best way to do that is to have 
um, you know, really authentic programs that you know, not only a pipeline into medicine, but a pipeline into academic medicine uh, as well. We have a pretty interesting program that we run where students can take an extra year to be a teacher, uh, either a teacher for primary care or a teacher for our uh, osteopathic manipulative, and manipulative medicine uh, program. And, and those programs end up really, uh, those folks are like junior faculty, they get to teach, they get mentored. And then that, that really helps to create a, a, a pipeline of future, future teachers. But e even with that, it, it, there's no way we'd be able to exist without recruiting on uh, active clinicians uh, to, to teach and to help them teach at the bedside or to teach in a classroom. On, and to provide, on, you know, kind of like the guidance and support to help them to help them develop. When when we opened our new campuses, the number one thing we needed to do was recruit uh, new clinical faculty on four clinical rotations, on, in particular, and assembled an entire program uh, just around the support to develop new faculty. Switching topics, uh, just a moment here. I I want to talk about. Uh, foreign doctors or doctors who are born outside of the uh, U.S. Uh, some stats that I've seen show that 18.2% of U.S. healthcare workers were born outside of the U.S. About 29% of physicians are born in other countries, and about 7% are not U.S. citizens. Well, we've had clampdowns on immigration, uh, visas. Talk about how that is impacting the the healthcare workforce. Yeah, well, if taking a really you know you know tongue in cheek, but a really global view on all of this, I I think there's a bit of a yin and yang to that to that question. So, uh, on the one hand. Um, we have uh, expertise and training programs where, where people from around the world can come and learn on, on, in whatever specialty that is. Um, I, that's not necessarily a bad thing. Um, the one worry is, are we draining talent from other countries that could be helpful if they went back onto their countries to help on, with the healthcare workforce needs on there? So that's that's one. That's one side of it. Uh, another side of it is we have uh, such a need for uh, for physicians that we could take even more from around the world uh, to fill in the gap while we're still trying to grow programs uh, inside of the inside of the United States on uh, here as 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 well. Um, so I, I think there's a couple different ways to to look at that. Last thing I want to talk about is is technology and the use of technology both in education uh, and in providing health care. Um, it seems that if we look at the definition, perhaps, uh, let's just say of a nurse, it used to be nurses worked in doctor's offices or nurses worked in hospitals and that they were at the bedside. You know, now there's so many technical aspects of nursing and IT aspects of, of nursing and healthcare. How is that going to help us bridge this gap of human personnel? Yeah, um, 
I, I love your question, Tom, because there's 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 a there's a piece of this which is it uh, technology is an enabler for us. So it it helps us uh, care for people better. And it provides us access to information in an instant where previously it took us a long time to get the uh, information. It allows us to um, analyze big trends and do do better. But it also can be a a, a barrier uh, to the to patient care um, and um, and and um, get in the way of uh, of those kind of therapeutic uh, relationships. If you're a provider in a room paying more attention to a computer than a patient. Uh, that's that's a problem. Um, uh, I, I've I've visited some um, ICUs on, and on cancer hospitals that have um, a high use of technology, but also recognized what that does to the patient experience. If if you if you've ever been in an ICU, uh, it's a pretty noisy place. Um, there's lots of monitors, and um, someone might be hooked up to twelve different uh, you know different things. Um, so they've actually um, done things of, of trying to um, minimize noise um, to help um, people have the best experience that they, uh, you know, that they could have um, with that. And so I, I think te technology has been a wonderful enabler. I would suggest as we move forward, we need to think about things like how do we create what I would call an empathic virtualist. Um, so if I'm going to do a televisit with you, Tom, on how do I connect to you, provide a caring um, uh, and compassionate um, setting virtually when I may have never met you before. Um, it's, it's a little easier to do that face-to-face, -face, um, but how, how do we give our providers that kind of skill um, through the use of technology um, to, create, to create that kind of caring uh, environment where people feel both cared for and cared about? It, it, I could be oversimplifying. I'm sure I am. But it, it, in the past, you know, people came to medical school generally from an undergraduate science background uh, of various sciences. Uh, are you seeing any trend now where you're getting people who are certainly have a scientific base, but also are into technology? I, I don't, I don't think I would uh, say that I, I've seen a trend except for, I, I, I joke around and call our students digital natives. I mean, they grew up, <laughs> they grew up with technology with, you know, iPhones, iPads, uh, et cetera. And so the, you know, the curriculum that we run we do simultaneous connection across three different campuses using technology and, and then also asynchronous um, uh, kind of work. And it was very, very easy for our students to adopt that learning uh, methodology because they, they are digital natives. Uh, and um, the uh, plus of all of that around my thinking about the uh, empathic and virtualist is that we have folks who are well, well skilled at the use of technology, and our goal is probably to help them be great physicians and use um, care and empathy, uh, and have technology uh, help us with that, uh, and keep the human piece uh, of care on front and center. Are you optimistic or pessimistic or someplace in between that we will solve this 
shortage of healthcare providers from physician on down in time to avoid a crisis? Um, I, I guess I would have to say that I'm pessimistic because it's a bit, it's been a known problem for decades um, and unfortunately not dealt with until a true crisis is in, is, is in your face. It, has that crisis been the, the pandemic? Has that forced focus on this issue? Absolutely. I think people are much, much more aware of it. And um, I, I think it has shined a light and given us um, some greater clarity. So, so if you're pessimistic that we're going to solve this issue, you know, we're still living longer. We're still going to have the need. Is that need just going to go unmet or are we going to find other ways of providing medical care? And so that's the optimistic side that I, that I have, which is um, I, I think that we're seeing the emergence of um, other kind of um, professionals and paraprofessionals to uh, to help with caring for people. You know, one that's become very popular is community health workers. Um, and uh, in many cases, these are uh, lay um, folks who get some additional training to help provide um, care and connection to services um, in various different um, communities. Um, the hard part of that is a, you know, kind of a sustainability and reimbursement model um, for, uh, for that. Um, but th- those, what, what I hope, my hope is that you know, we've we've talked about the concept of the patient-centered medical home. Um, I, I hope that we can expand that thinking into maybe the patient-centered medical neighborhood or even beyond into the patient-centered medical community, where we're thinking about aligning as much of the resources as the limited resources that we have to try to provide for a greater level of health for our for our communities, you know, Tom. One thing we didn't we didn't touch on is that there's an estimate that something between somewhere between fifty and maybe as high as ninety percent of health is driven through the social determinants of health, and and some folks have said that your your zip code may be a better determiner of your run of your health than any other piece of you know piece of data on with, with that. So I think if we can be thinking a little bit, you know, a little bit more broadly, uh, and bringing those resources together to focus on, on maybe things that are upstream from people who aren't aren't healthy inside of that, the social determinants of health, access to food, transportation, housing, um, things like that, that are major, are actually fairly major drivers of either health or or illness. So uh, an environmental approach, in environmental uh, is broadly defined. Yes, absolutely. Dr. Johnson, it's always a pleasure to talk with you. Uh, I'm so glad we had this conversation. I, I wanted to bring this to, to people's attention uh, and, and the gravity of the situation you're facing day in and day out. Thanks, Tom. I, I really appreciate it. And I, you know, my my greatest gratitude is for for all the healthcare workers, regardless of their discipline, for what they do, day in and, and day out. We we often uh, ask how we can help them, uh, because I, we feel such a, a, a sense of gratitude on uh, every day. 
Today, we've been talking with Dr. Kenneth Johnson about the predicted shortage of healthcare personnel looming in this country. Spectrum is produced by WOUB Public Media. Adam Rich is our co-producer. I'm your host, Tom Hudson. Please subscribe to Spectrum. You can do that at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, or at NPR One. Spectrum also is available at the NPR Podcast Directory. We always welcome your feedback, so please rate our podcast or review it through one of your favorite podcast outlets. If you have questions or comments about any of our podcasts or have suggested topics for us to look into in the future, please direct them to me by email at hodson at ohio.edu. That's Hodson, H-O-D-S-O-N, at ohio.edu. Have a good day, everybody.